The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for November 16, 2017. The She Was Just 17, You Know What I Mean edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. With me in the Slate DC podcast studio is Face the Nation's John Dickerson. Howdy, John. Hi. And from Slate's Brooklyn studio is the New York Times Magazine's Emily Bazelon. Hello, Emily. Hey, guys. Glad to be here with you on this early morning, which I dragged everyone to come early. On this week's early morning Gab Fest, not early morning when you're listening, listeners, maybe it is, the astonishing, disgusting, metastasizing Roy Moore scandal with a small side dish of Bill Clinton scandal. Then the latest machinations on the GOP's tax bill will yoking the tax bill to the repeal of the individual mandate prove a winning strategy. Then the Russia investigation takes another new twist. As it turns out, Donald Trump Jr. was communicating vigorously with WikiLeaks throughout the campaign. John sort of shook his head and vigorously, but that's okay. Plus, I did not shake his head vigorously. Yeah, you shake your head eh, like an eh. That was an eh. That was a visual eh. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And remember, we're starting to collect your conundrums for our live conundrum show in Boston in just three weeks. Uh, you can email us, Facebook, uh, Twitter, tweet at us with a conundrum, which we could do on the show. So, for example, one that we got sent was, is it okay to use your sick leave to take care of your sick pet? Interesting question. Oh. There's still a few tickets left for that conundrum show live in Boston, December 6th at the Wilbur Theater. You can get <laughs> slate.com slash live <laughs> to get tickets. And you also get a They Might Be Giants concert thrown in in the bargain because they're going to be accompanying us and uh, playing with us at the Wilbur Theater. December 6th, slate.com slash live. Please come join us. It's a really fun show. When I look back at the topics that we have discussed on the Gap Fest in the past year, it is kind of amazing. There's just been an amazing... The, the, the churn, the volume of news, the, the strangeness of it all, travel bans, the Obamacare repeals, the private jet abuses, the bizarre presidential behavior. Week after week, something more astonishing than the week before emerges to stain and punish us. This week, we have topped ourselves. And the, it is verily more astonishing. Yes. Even by 2017 standards, the Roy Moore sex scandal is really bizarre and disturbing and perverse. Here we have a Senate candidate in Alabama, already one who was who was quite outside the mainstream, one who holds outlandish and, and extremely troubling policy positions, uh, but he's held himself up over the years as a moral paragon, and he's been exposed by superb on-the-record journalism from the Washington Post and Alabama newspapers, among others, as a predatory creep who lechd after teenage girls while a grown man, credibly accused of sexually assaulting at least two of them, one of them very underage, threatening at least one of them, and even turned out to seemingly have been banned by an Alabama mall for being so creepy. And yet, and yet he remains a credible, perhaps even the favored candidate to win a special Senate election in Alabama. So Emily, first question, have you ever been banned from a mall? <laughs> It happens to me all the time. No, I've never been banned from a mall. I mean, what is kind of amazing as this story unfolds is how much local distress there was about Roy Moore and the ways it was manifesting itself. I mean, some of the girls and young women who worked at that mall were basically warning each other that when he walked into the store, you had to get away from him. And of course, the anecdote that's the most insane about all of this, um, I, I mean, take your pick, but... There was one um, girl, I think, right around she was like 17 or 18, where he tried to ask her on a date and she said no. And then he called the school and she like heard her name on the loudspeaker and went to the office. And it was Roy Moore calling to ask her on a date. And she said, I was in trig class. It's just the lengths of creepiness he was willing to go um, and the degree to which it wasn't public in the sense of being news, but it was certainly in the air in Gadsden, this town um, where he was the district attorney. It's kind of amazing. And underneath, at some point, we have to think about how the district of attorney 
can poss- could have behaved. I would like to think that this happened now. This person would just go to prison. But um, that how it was that in that moment, someone like this was tolerated and not exactly outed for this kind of conduct. But of course, we're preoccupied with these like more pressing political questions right now because the guy could very well be elected to the Senate. So, John, could the guy very well be elected to the Senate? If and, the and- voters of Alabama decide, I mean, he, yes, the voters of Alabama could decide this. There is a group of his supporters, which um, uh, last week when we recorded the show, we were it was almost as if the, the final syllable had gone through the magical machine and then the Washington Post story hit. So it was right after we were done recording, but we should uh, think back to the episode in this drama where the Republican officials from Alabama defended him even they said if the allegations were true, and at that time the allegation that was the one at the center of the story, which still is there, but has just been is is that there was a fourteen year old girl that he had an actual encounter with, and and so this wasn't and that, a really and they, predatory encounter. We should in say a, in a sort of yeah, I mean novelistically predatory and. There were these Republicans in Alabama who were saying, even if this were true, we'd still vote for him. So that all could still be happened. What happened this week, or one of the things, is that Republican senators said, basically, if he's elected, we would uh, not seat him. So, And they can do that with two-thirds of the body. So it seems like even if he's elected, he will— Why would Democrats vote for that? Well, I think uh, I think self-respect for the institution that you're a part of, I think that would—, that would um, I, th- uh, I, I think that would happen ultimately. But there's point. a game of chess about that, which has to do with Jeff Sessions taking that seat, right? I mean, yeah, although- you have an open attorney general spot at a very vulnerable moment for the. Um, Wait, Emily, well, you jumped ahead for me. Yeah. You jumped ahead and Sorry. I, somehow. So if John or Emily, one of you. So if he's not seated by the senate then what happened then i think you can and then you can then the governor yeah i think you'd be named by somebody would be named by the governor yeah. and okay. the other thing is they're also um banding about the idea of having luther strange who currently occupies that senate he's stepped down so they can call a new special election and postpone it i mean this is this is really like messing with the basics of democracy postponing an election because you don't like your candidate anymore but you're not just getting rid of him because of course the Alabama Republicans could also take this nomination away from him couldn't they No well what do you mean you mean just say we don't support him anymore but could they also just well i guess they can't they can't take him off the ticket they can't take him off the ballot they right. could they could mobilize to have a write-in campaign but that would be uh Tricky. And I mean, tricky in the sense that that it would be hard to get the word out, although it's hard to imagine anybody in Alabama who doesn't know that uh, everything and every turn about this about this story, which um, can we just revel for a moment in the in how if you were to construct this conspiracy theory? So the allegation from Roy Moore and from his defenders is that this is a one huge big conspiracy in which somehow the Washington Post and the Republican establishment are in cahoots, which is kind of uh, hard to imagine since those two things are usually put at the opposite ends of, of a spectrum. But think about what would be required for this conspiracy to actually take place. You would have to have somebody – just take one little corner of it. Somebody concoct a story about being called over a loudspeaker, somebody forging – uh, a, a signature in a in a yearbook. It's those two things. Either one of those two things might not be true, but the two of them plus the nineteen other things. I mean, there's just human experience suggests you cannot like uh, uh, that. Anyway, there are now <laughs> you know forty or so people who are unconnected, largely unconnected to each other. Yeah, who have made separate allegations. Each one and Moore himself has, of course, conceded huge swaths of this. He doesn't right. deny having hit on. Teenage girls. But at the same time, he and his wife, we should say, have been just humiliating and denigrating specific women who've accused him. So there is both this um, sense that some of what he's doing was that he's okay with, like was licit. And then this merciless effort to just rip people apart. What the hell is wrong with Alabama? I mean, what is it that this is because one of the things, Emily, which is which is which is so shocking about more to begin with is that. He is he's a disgusting, outrageous person, totally independent of his Humbert Humbert uh, lechery. He's somebody who has said that 
Muslims cannot serve in Congress. He has, as a justice of the Alabama Supreme Court, refused to carry out the law of the land. He has said all kinds of vile things about about gay people. Um, I mean, he he's somebody who who until until it turns out he's also a, a you know a sexual assaulter of young girls was you know going to be in the Senate and highly supported by the people of Alabama in a way that is it's truly troubling. I guess I what's wrong with Alabama seems like not a useful question to me. I mean, first of all, it's like tarring everybody in Alabama with the same brush and that's just not fair. Obviously, lots of people don't support more and more. And also, I just feel like I don't understand well enough the dynamic um of people who are supporting him, but there are a lot of people who Think I'm sure there are many people who, if they vote for him, will do it with a strong sense of distaste, but who feel like having a Democrat in office representing Alabama is just like a travesty they can't stand for. And so it's about those larger political forces to some degree. Right. right. I think that's it's about um, I mean, this word gets thrown around a lot, but I think it's an apt word is the the tribalism in politics right now. In both parties, what we are seeing now, however, is tribalism in the in the Republican ranks in Alabama. And I think you saw a certain amount of tribalism in the first set of responses to the um, revelations last week. Um, The dam broke really only when um, Mitt Romney, Mike Lee and Steve Daines broke from the consensus, which was essentially, well, if it the first reaction from leaders was, if it's true, he should resign. But that essentially left it in Roy Moore's hands. And he said, it's not true. And then the script would have followed that he would have um, uh, kept saying it's not true, would have been elected, and everybody would have moved on. What What changed, among other things, there were other revelations and that kind of thing, but is Mitt Romney and two Republican senators who unendorsed him saying, we've looked at the allegations and the new standard here for evaluating these kinds of things, because we're in this cultural moment where we're where everybody's getting an education on the new standards for how to handle things brought forth by accusers. The old standard was, well, you know, basically, unless you had videotaped evidence, uh, it's a he said, she said. In this case, Lee and Danes and uh, Romney said, we looked at the evidence in the piece at the Post did. It's credible. Uh, and he should step down. And that kind of broke it. And you started to see then senators slowly kind of follow on that Pat Toomey. And then and then the dam kind of broke on on Monday. Um, I thought there were still only 10 Republican senators who'd explicitly said condemned him. I, I think I think it's more than that by now. It f- I stopped counting after it felt like the dam broke on um on Monday or Tuesday. But anyway, I guess just the the point is that the tribalism here, a Republican congressman said to me last night, he was like, when did we become so um, uh, concerned about our party that we uh, forgot right and wrong, which is kind of people would say, well, that happens all the time. But this is obviously quite a new... uh, But I think also what's extraordinary about this is the means to an ends part because um, Moore and his supporters and a lot of Republicans are so comfortable attacking the media. He has this very ready defense uh, and a lot of people will believe that this is a conspiracy by The Washington Post. Um, They just will. And so because of that, they're right and wrong, get totally scrambled. And then you have the situation where you right, like maybe people used to run from candidates like this because there was no prayer of making people believe they were anything other than guilty. And now there is that prayer. And so we're seeing people avail themselves. Themselves of of that like end run around moral reckoning. Mm-hmm. Well, who who's another example of of somebody who is so immoral and so grotesque and yet has gotten away with it? And, I mean, I guess Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, yes. that's a good one. <laughs> well, well, and I mean, people also, would. I mean, obviously. I mean, you know, this takes us into the territory of Bill Clinton, and there were multiple accusers against Bill Clinton, and a rallying of the troops by Gloria Steinem and other feminists. I mean the op-ed that Steinem wrote dismissing Kathleen Willey and Monica Lewinsky and Paula Jones, not even touching on Monita Broderick, who makes the most disturbing allegations against Bill Clinton. That op-ed reads as just like a total um, allowance of sexual harassment and sexual misconduct in any kind of work or just like any kind of setting. It's really quite shocking. And there was the same calculation being made by feminists at the time. 
Bill Clinton's our guy. He's doing a lot of things for us. We're going to look the other way. Now, it is hard to evaluate each of those accusations in hindsight and decide how much they stand up. Um, Michelle Goldberg, in her Times column this week, kind of went through them and raised questions about Paul Jones's account and other aspects of Willie's account. But Juanita Broderick sort of stands there, too. You can argue about that one. But again, we have this question of, well, multiple women, why weren't they believed at the time? And what do we do about the fact that Bill Clinton is not a pariah in the Democratic Party? What do we do about it? What do we do about it? I, so what's what's hard for me about this is I for many I have no attachment to Bill Clinton for many years. I have been ready to take that step. But this, his sins are being visited on Hillary Clinton. I mean, that was the campaign. Right. And that infuriated me. And I don't agree with Juanita Broderick's interpretation of this um, encounter she had with Hillary Clinton after this alleged rape by Bill Clinton took place. Broderick says that Clinton said to her, like, we appreciate what you're doing for Bill or something that was like a very generic statement when your husband is running for office. And Broderick took that as a threat. And in that moment, if this did indeed happen to Broderick, you could imagine why seeing Hillary and having her say that or really anything would have been really upsetting. But I don't I did not think it was fair for all of that to come down on Hillary during the campaign. But, and so I found myself defending her while I really want nothing to do with defending but, Bill Clinton. But, Emily, I think that's a little uh, bit of an easy out because the fact is that Hillary Clinton ran a campaign. Hillary Clinton is in no sense responsible for her husband's poor behavior. And I think you're right that the one under Broderick, the, the notion that, that Hillary Clinton was threatening Juanita Broderick seems very far-fetched. And there's no other evidence that Hillary Clinton has ever done anything to, to, you know, to, well, maybe there's not much evidence that she's done stuff to undermine these women who's made accusations against her husband. That said, she was relying on her husband as a key element in her campaign. And he his speeches and his speech at the convention was very valuable. His his public appearances on her behalf, the fact that everyone, you know, you know, she hearkened back to the days of him as president. So it's not she she didn't she didn't um she, she didn't separate herself. She, she has she, not distanced herself from him. From him. Yeah. Right. No, and implicit. And, and, and you don't, you don't, she is not required as a wife to distance herself from right. him. In the privacy of their marriage, they can have whatever relationship they want. I mean, they've been married for many years and, and I'm sure they have a deep and rich relationship. But I do think that insofar as she is running a presidential campaign in which she invokes him and uses him, people are allowed to talk about that. Yeah, that's totally because fair. implicit implicit in that invocation is a skipping over these sets of questions. Right. Right. And it made her an incredibly flawed candidate. I mean, look, I think if you could if Harvey Weinstein had broken in the way it broke before Hillary's nomination, I don't think she would have been nominated or at least I don't think it would have been politically crazy to have nominated her in light of all this. And it turned out that Bill Clinton was a huge Achilles heel for her because she was so ill positioned to really call out Donald Trump on the Access Hollywood tape. Here's a question about um, the moment we're in right now. Um, so uh, I'm fixated on this, you know, how essentially the Senate has in order to get rid of Roy Moore. And there's a, you know, there's a, obviously another inspiration here is not just the facts of the case, but there are a bunch of senators in the Republican ranks who think Roy Moore is a would be a bad senator. And there is an establishment versus a kind of... Um, I don't know what we call it, kind of Steve Bannon grassroots battle going on here. Um, but anyway, th that being said, Mitch McConnell has now uh, embraced this standard, which is to say that when there is a certain amount of credible evidence, it makes a person disqualified for being in the Senate. That's the new standard that he has embraced. So why does that standard only exist for this one candidate? Doesn't it create a, a new standard here? And then when we... Presumably, we apply that to other figures, which means then an evaluation of the claims, the number of them and their veracity is perfectly within keeping when you're evaluating candidates and people. And if that's following that line of reasoning, then it is totally reasonable to say, well, so what's the difference between the accusers of the president and the accusers of Roy Moore? At which point, Mitch McConnell said when he was asked that question, look, we're talking about the Alabama senator here, which is um, – a dodge, obviously, but actually there's no there's no rational case why the new standards that apply to one don't also get to apply 
and then require answers. Well, Amen. except the Senate. So one, I don't believe this, but, you know, the, the voters knew all the facts about Donald Trump. He was elected president, despite all that knowledge, number one. Number two, the Senate is not itself is can not let Roy Moore in because mm-hmm. it, that's their club, right? right. They, they right. have a club and they can right. make rules about who can and can't be right. in their club. Right. The president is not in that club. The right. president's in a different club. Right. And and so the public as a whole could make a big stink about it. But I don't but think it's the Senate's responsibility to, to judge it. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I think, think that's an interesting, I think there's, anyway, sorry, go ahead. I don't buy that at all because when Trump was a candidate before he was a president, the Republicans generally in the Senate and Congress did not run from him on these allegations. They stood there woodenly, tried not to answer questions about it and have been supporting him and his legislative agenda. I mean, if they want to make him pay. They have obvious ways to do that, and they don't. Here's the other reason why you could imagine it's important for uh, anybody in leadership to speak up is if we are in this moment where the Senate is now having its own sexual harassment um, training that it voted for, and the House is too, part of that reason is that both institutions have decided that they need a little refresher course or they need to put their members in touch with the new standards for both behavior, but then evaluating um, people when they come forward. So if both of those bodies have taken it upon themselves to uh, participate in that education, then as a member of the body and a leader of the body, presumably uh, you should weigh in. Uh, on that question of, sta- of what's the new standard for allegations that come forward. Do you guys think that if the Trump allegations were came out today, that that would sink his candidacy? If this were, we're, we're a year past that, and there's been so much churn and sturm and drong about, about male misbehavior, in a post-Weinstein world, would Trump's misbehaviors be devastating or not or is no it- i don't think it would play out very differently at all i mean it it depresses me to say that but i don't and i think it has to do with the trump's innate um boorishness the fact that this really wasn't a surprise like we all knew it was like the most right. unsurprising thing in the right. entire world right. that was sort of baked into people's analysis of him and they had already made their bargain with him enough of the voters you know there are other things you could take out of the election mix like but i think that one i do think that 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 those allegations did not hurt him because of who he is and also because they they were gross and yucky but they weren't about 14 year olds and like right. you know that does make a difference he did talk about the 14 year olds he did he talk about the 14 year olds but right yes but if part of the condition that we're trying to evolve from here was the reduction in enabling behavior that allowed Weinstein to go and all these others to exist. Don't you imagine somebody would have said because enabling is a, because enabling either from the, the close people around this institution or just the general boys will be boys kind of public enabling. uh, Don't you think somebody, more people would have gone, come forward and said, uh, we have to speak out um, and we have to not ratify this by electing this person. I'm not saying it would maybe be have been successful. Um, More people who? Because what you mean is Republicans. Yeah. Like lots of people said that. But the people who didn't say that were well, the Republican I, establishment. All right. Let's, let's leave it there. I'm sure we're going to discuss this later. Ten more times. Ten thousand more times. We have a Slate Plus segment for you lucky Slate Plus members. It's a particularly good one today because it's very Basilani. What Supreme Court justice would you want to have dinner with? Which Supreme Court justice would you want to have dinner with from history or or the present? And what would you want to discuss with that justice? If you would like to be a Slate Plus member and hear bonus segments like that, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to sign up. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. 
So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The Republican tax bill is accelerating. The House is expected to vote on its version of the bill before Thanksgiving, right, John? Is the House one before Thanksgiving? The House yeah, is like today, on today. Yeah, And the Senate is, is voting next week, maybe. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's right. The and it wasn't even our first topic. Can we just like pause for a moment? I mean, that's yeah. craziness and not good also. Well, let's talk about that. So the, the biggest drama this week is the merger of two favorite strands of GOP obsession. The tax cuts uh, have tax cut bill has now been attached to an Obamacare mandate repeal in the Senate bill, the urging of Rand Paul and Ted Cruz, among others. So, John, just briefly uh, orient us. Why why have these two, uh, why have the streams crossed in this way? Uh, well, to find money and also to pick up votes. I mean, one of the arguments that's been given to me is if the individual mandate passes from the Senate, if there's other stuff in the bill, if the removal of the individual mandate that's part of the Affordable Care Act passes as part of the Senate bill, it'll be harder for conservatives in the House who don't like elements in the Senate bill to disagree with it because it'll have that piece in it. So it's a bargaining chip from one body to the other. And it's also a way to get some money because the effects of removing the individual mandate would be that fewer people would sign up, it would cost less, and that would be money that could be put towards the tax cut. And meanwhile, everyone else's insurance premiums will go up 10% in the Obamacare uh, market. Or 20 depending on or which uh, analysis you look at. Right. Um, so – Emily, when you look at the key elements of the bill, there's a huge corporate tax cut that would be permanent. There's an estate tax cut that's permanent. Then there's some temporary things, uh, which would sunset in 2025, a raising of the standard deduction, increasing the child tax credit, some rate cuts. The things that might actually benefit more middle class people are those why, things to which you yeah, are referring? So, so yeah, so why is this bill, this is a bill that is going to massively help rich people and a lot of middle class people are going to see a tax hike eventually, and a lot of the whatever tax benefits there are are going to expire in a few years. What's the why do it? I mean, and, and, can, and is it politically wise to do it? Maybe it is, even despite all that. Uh, well, I guess the first question. I mean, I don't know how to explain this other than a kind of dogmatic belief in supply side economics that you cut all these business taxes that the trickle down effect which has failed with previous tax cuts is going to magically work this time because it's called a corporate tax cut instead of um, changing individual marginal rates I it's like that just seems it doesn't seem like they're really credible analysts who think that that is a real thing that's going to happen but the Republicans are deeply wedded to that belief and their donors are super wedded to it so there you have it in terms of the political wisdom of this, I mean, they're caught, aren't they? So one script is these good-for-nothings, they couldn't pass anything, throw the bums out in 2018. They seem to deeply fear that script. I would, too, if I were them. And then the other script is they have perpetuated this just gigantic historical legislative scam on the American people, and they have taken all of the money and given it to really rich people. And, you know, meanwhile, our, our rates of inequality were already rising, and this is like turning the society into a plutocracy, and that also might not play well in 2018. They seem more afraid of the first possibility, but I also think it's just like in line with their values and what they've been, you know, saying since Reagan, if not earlier. And there's just like an inability to detach themselves from that historical um, faith, despite all the countervailing evidence. It's amazing how often a Republican legislator, when talking about this bill and the need to pass the bill, will mention their donors, that the donors expect it. And donors are not constituents. I mean, they may be constituents, but yeah, that's but not they who have they huge are. Power. But mean, they, they have just an, right. They have disproportionate power. So even though it may not help your actual constituents, the people who you serve as a public servant, legislators feel they, they're not necessarily feeling the pressure from actual voters. They're feeling the pressure from the money people, which is weird. 
It's not, but you, I mean, it's not weird. It's understandable. It is obviously in total contravention of the message that the president ran on as a candidate, which is that the members of Congress shouldn't be beholden to their big funders and lobbyists, which is which he said repeatedly and uh, constantly. And that he um, was going to help the people, right? Not yeah. just drain the swamp. Also, all of this populist rhetoric is like going absolutely nowhere. Did you guys read that good interview, Ross Dow, that did with Henry Olson and some other foreign policy guy whose name I'm forgetting? Anyway, Henry Olson is like a conservative populist. And the first thing he said was like, this is just completely bankrupt. It's yielding nothing. Meaning well, also, the Trump presidency and its conservative populism promises. Just as a matter of messaging, too, we know for sure that the corporate tax cut is going to pass as a part of whatever the final agreement is. Like, And we're pretty sure, 93.7% sure, that it's going to pass at 20%, at, at the new rate will be 20%. Like, that is the one thing we can probably all bank on. The thing that's quite up for grabs. Um, is the middle class tax cut. It's going to sunset and some people are going to pay more. If this were truly the way it was being sold uh, as a middle class tax cut, you would have those two things would be totally reversed. Um, Now, the argument is no, but you don't understand the corporate tax rate reduction is itself a backdoor middle class tax cut because the lower taxes will be put into wages when um, Gary Cohn. No evidence that will happen. Anti-evidence. When Gary Gary Cohn, the White House economic advisor, put that question to an audience of CEOs this week um, and asked them. Um, I can't remember the exact question he asked them, but essentially asked them to ratify the theory behind that notion. Like, not that many raised right, their the hands that said they were going to do that. Right. Yeah. Even like, when why they were like, the rest of you your hands? this is my photo op, guys. Like, it's the moment to lie. And they didn't do it. And by the way, the economic thing at the back. So that this is just garden, you know, this is um, uh, the veracity. We've been talking about checking the veracities of the claims that are at the heart of this tax bill. But if this theory doesn't work out, the... Debt and deficit grow, and that's a huge drag on the economy and, and and causes all kinds of problems. So it's not just like – I mean, so there is a huge downside, which Republicans have educated us about for years and years and right, years. Right, but, but it, it's not going to happen this year. All the candy – it's all candy yeah, up front. Yeah, yeah. It's candy today, candy that's today, right. candy tomorrow. Right. And then all the you know the loss and deprivation and suffering and the, right. the shrinking economy happens down the road. It's That's it's, what's so – well, here's, Demoralizing here's the it. other second. So let's say it gets passed. And in order to pass it, um, those who support it, who have spent their careers worrying about the deficit, have to put their deficit fears in a box. And then the minute it does pass, they can take them out again and say, oh, my gosh, the deficit is in and debt are in real danger here. So we need to reform entitlements, which would be a, uh, a, a kind of Machiavellian and perhaps a clever way to get back to entitlement reform, which is what they've wanted to do for a long time, using their Stripping exacerbation. Stripping from normal people. <clears throat> they're exacerbating the deficit issue in order to create a new pressure for entitlement reform. If you take conservative populism seriously, why isn't Steve Bannon and his minions, why aren't they like out on the streets protesting this tax bill like this is everything they hate this is washington hurting regular middle class people for the sake of really wealthy people i thought this was like the central tenet of what they objected to and like i have we heard a peep from them like what steve bannon is off defending roy moore he's not opposing this bill in any like concerted way there's just i mean maybe that's just obvious and this is deeply hypocritical and i shouldn't be taking the principle seriously but i just like literally don't understand this like how much just pure unfairness and taking away of resources from most of us are we really going to stand for it is weird how how so many people sort of have principles around policy that they talk about in politics they have principles around policy but then when it becomes a choice between your principles on policy and then electoral victory they'll take electoral victory and i what? i think bannon i think bannon has been seduced i mean bannon loves the idea of being on a winning team and or it's just all like a big or, media show and I'm like pretending that it's about politics when really it's about performance. Uh, or you could, or they might believe it. They might believe that the, the corporations, which on the one hand, they have made a blanket statement about the rapacious behavior of those corporations who've shipped job, jobs overseas and done trade deals with, with bad countries and done all these bad things in the trade area. They 
nevertheless, in this instance, think those corporations will behave in the way that the authors of this tax cut believe. <laughs> but that's uh, nonsense. Well done. You just no, made it sound not, ridiculous just no, no. laying yeah. it out there. But I'm just, it's ridiculous. I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not defending it. What does the word believe saying, mean in that sentence? That is a word that could be used to me. I'm just, uh, I'm just, you know, um, I mean, it's like I was, you know, t- t- the other part of this where, where the numbers don't add up either is if on the one hand, People believe that uh, the president's supporters believe, A, that the lobbyists are involved in this this tax bill and that the swamp is filled with awful special interests. And two, that Congress is absolutely supine in the face of these special interests and just do whatever the special interests want. And if those are the two biggest forces working on this tax legislation, why then should anybody think that the product will ultimately help them? And yet they do. Emily, do you think that the that the Frankensteining of the uh, Obamacare mandate repeal onto this bill helps it or hurts it. It will certainly mobilize Democratic opposition because they're now, it's going to undermine health care in the country. And there were certainly senators who opposed that, the mandate repeal back in, in the summer when that, when that was on the table is the fact that it's now latched to this tax bill that Republicans feel they need to, past does it make it um, palatable now i mean i it's just about counting the senators so presumably susan collins is not going to vote for this bill or at least like if she's consistent um with her health care votes she won't i i don't think you're right about that i don't think really? she's a she's not a mandate person she was more concerned about the medicaid cuts but well, I thought, but she, sorry, I think she's. I think she's a. She has both said she's concerned about the mandate and the effects that would happen because of paygo on the budget. I think she's a. She's in the skeptical category as of Thursday morning. Okay. Right. Okay. So there's her. But I guess the other thing I'm wondering about is Lisa Murkowski. So Lisa Murkowski was a no vote. But there's now like a big yeah. drill in the yeah. Alaska yeah. Wildlife she's, Refuge. She seems, give me for her. That's an Alaska kickback. My um, God. I mean, so you know, then that's that's probably the end of her opposition. No, and then like so now we have Ron Johnson from Wisconsin, but he his his opposition has nothing to do with healthcare. It's about the pass through small businesses. He claims n- not getting the same uh, tax cut as the corporate rate cut tax cut going down to 20 percent right so that's like a whole uh, and maybe they could fix that for him too i don't know how much well that's that's the interesting moment we're in right now so the administration officials think that johnson's doing what's familiar in these instances which is like he wants his thing he'll speak up and say i'm going to kill this he'll get what he wants and then uh, that will encourage other people to do the same thing and then the question is as you plug all these holes do you start to lose votes because the things you do to plug the holes either a uh, screw up the budget effects in the Senate or somehow lose you voters elsewhere in the process. Um, and so that's a, uh, a part of this drama that we, we may see now. We should, by the way, note that signups for the Affordable Obama, Care Act yeah. are 47% higher than this if, during the same period last year. Even though um, they closed the website on Sundays yeah. and did no advertising. Yeah. Websites don't work on Sundays, Emily. <laughs> but they, it's an interesting... They go to church. Right. I'm sorry, but, I forgot. But, it is an interesting um, way in which, uh, I mean, the, the analysis I've seen, which seems to make sense to me in, in, in the absence of a more compelling uh, explanation, is that basically all of the efforts to kill the Affordable Care Act have been a tremendous advertisement for it. Right. Yay. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Attorney General Jeff Sessions had a busy week. He's being brooded about as the potential Senate savior for the Roy Moore Senate race gone upside down. Then he testified in Congress this week, admitting knowledge that the Trump campaign had Russia contacts that he had vehemently denied knowledge about before. He also teased the idea, really at the urging of congressional Republicans. He, he at least considered the idea of an investigation into the Clinton Foundation and Uranium One and Clinton emails and who the hell knows what else, maybe Vince Foster. 
Meanwhile, back at the Atlantic, Julia Yaffe revealed that WikiLeaks was messaging with Donald Trump Jr. during the campaign and even after the election in an effort on WikiLeaks's part to help the Trump campaign. Emily, what did we learn about this WikiLeaks Trump Jr. connection? And is it important to the Russian investigation or is it a big deal about not very much? Well, I mean, WikiLeaks was reaching out a lot, shall we say, to Donald Trump in a very sort of friendly, casual, breezy way, asking for many things. I should say Donald Trump Jr., not actually Donald Trump. And there were three times, I think, when Donald Trump Jr. responded in some way. And then there's this convergence where WikiLeaks suggested that Donald Trump Sr. tweet something about how, you know, it's... Email dump wasn't getting enough media attention. And 15 minutes later, Donald Trump did indeed tweet such sentiments. And so, you know, you can see that's collusion or coordination or back and forth. Now, is it criminal? You know, WikiLeaks is another kind of foreign agent that was meddling with our election. And so if you take a broad view of it, it's like one more data point that the Trump campaign and Don Trump Jr. in particular were super willing to be having dealings with these folks. And obviously, we don't know what was going on outside the purview of DMing. Although I will say the fact that WikiLeaks keeps trying to DM him suggests that like they're not talking on the phone. I didn't think it was the biggest deal in the whole world. I was more struck by this part of Jeff Sessions's testimony that I just literally find illogical. So Sessions says he doesn't really remember this meeting, doesn't at all remember this meeting with, um, what's the guy's name again? Papadopoulos. Papadopoulos. Thank you. Papadopoulos. How could I forget that? With Papadopoulos, the young Trump campaign, should we say official aide, whatever, who was, you know, trying to set up a meeting between Trump and Putin. He doesn't remember when Papadopoulos broaches his meetings, but he is absolutely sure that he rejected the notion out of hand. Like, how are those two things logically compatible? You don't remember, but you're sure about what you said. I don't get that. Right. Also, he had, of course, didn't remember anything about this last time he testified. I mean, he'd, he'd, he'd vehemently objected to the idea that he had any contacts or the, that he had knew anything about yes. uh, any uh, such contacts with Russians. Indeed. On the Why isn't that perjury? Well, it could be well, a you, false you to, statement before yeah. the Congress, but then did he do it willfully, knowingly, knowingly yeah. et cetera? Then you're in like proof, you know, mens rea, which means like state of mind land. And so we have not yet seen that charge formally brought against Jeff Sessions. The question on the WikiLeaks front is if it um, – I don't know, and Emily, maybe you do about the law on this, whether – so it is illegal for someone to help um, help a foreign national interfere with an election or, or accept something of value from a foreign national, right? Yes. So – But this – I don't know if this would count as a thing Yeah, does this count like, as that? Is, well – well, and I, I guess in this, I guess the question is, we're not maybe necessarily the. So it seems like the fifteen minutes are you know cru- crucial in this because, although not in terms of the criminal case, like okay, so they passed on something from WikiLeaks that was um, uncool, but that's you know all's fair in in campaigns. In other words, does it require you to have been a knowing part of a conspiracy from a foreign entity to um, to engage in the campaign? It seems to me though, when you pair it with the meeting. With the Russian lawyer who was advertised as coming to the meeting with goods from the Russian government. It's not whether she delivered the goods, but it's whether you were you were anxious to to get them from the Russian government. I don't see why that is not. I mean, obviously, that's old news, but it, it, it does seem to me to be a more serious thing, because in that case, you really you were going into the meeting saying, yes, okay, you've got this information we know it's from the Russians, so that's a foreign government, but I'm anxious to hear it. Um, that's right. Whereas the, you don't know what the WikiLeaks thing is. Like, oh, yeah, they you know they sent this thing. Sure, we'll do anything to throw up some chaff in the middle of the campaign. So we tweeted this out. But it doesn't mean you need to know that the thing that they're, you know, you don't have to do due diligence on what it is that they're they're tweeting or that's they're, right. They're I mean, if we ever up. read an indictment of Don J- Trump Jr., it is going to have this as like a footnote, one of many little details explaining the context and kind of putting together the picture. But it's like a little bead in the mosaic, right? It's not going to be the main thrust of the indictment. 
the DMs will not be the main. No, thrust. right. Yeah, the meeting right. is okay. a bigger deal, and then the question is like, what else surrounds that meeting, et cetera? The things we've been speculating about for months, and maybe Bob Mueller and his prosecutors know and investigators know much more about. Was, I like I like Jeff Sessions's basic explanation for why he perjured himself and why all this stuff happened, which was that the campaign was a shit show, that nobody, it was incredibly chaotic. Well, they've been all saying that, right? Jared Kushner says that. They all claim that, like, they just weren't organized enough to collude, essentially. I think, well, Sessions claimed a slightly different thing, which was just it was confusing and how can I possibly remember because everything was going in 50 million directions. That actually, to me, seems both true about campaigns in general and very true about this one in particular. And... If Except it was the sessions is conveniently forgetting the same things about sure. meeting Russians, Russians discussed right. like multiple times. It right. Just well, seems that's a the thing. Right. And they've all forgotten. It's a pattern. All of, all of the Russian meetings. Um, it's a pattern. And also in the context, of this, the other context that's important here is one person who told the FBI he had forgotten did so with the purposes of misleading the FBI and has now pled to trying to mislead the FBI. But the other thing here is um, – that I think Senator Sessions would have been furious about and would have given a, um, you know, a strong talking to any witness who behaved in this way is that his responses have not exactly been bending over backwards to rake over his recollection to see if, I mean, in other words, it's, it's not too far from the Mike Pence responses to these kinds of questions, which this was another bad week for the vice president because he said, um, you know, nothing could be further from the truth when he was asked about any connection between the campaign and WikiLeaks. If your inclination is to say things that are that categorical. are categorical in the other direction, then it does add to the suspicion as opposed to saying, you know, in the first answer to Al Franken could have been, you know, it was a completely chaotic campaign. I wasn't a surrogate. I was sometimes called a surrogate. I was in a lot of meetings. They were, you know, there's a lot going on. If it happened, it was of such minor, you know, obviously that would have gotten a lot of coverage at the time. The context in which these answers have been given is one in which the the Jeff Sessions has not been, you know, dying to, to search his recollect, recollection. Well, we have to talk about this crazy idea that the Justice Department is looking into yeah. Hillary Clinton. I mean, I that, cannot believe we have gotten that. Far. OK, go that, ahead. that's what I wanted to okay. turn to. You may yeah. turn to yeah. it. I so am sorry. That was going to say. So. There is a clear push from Republican members of the House uh, and the president of the United States and the president of the United States for there to be a special counsel investigating Hillary Clinton and the Clinton campaign, the Clinton Foundation, Uranium One deal, anything else you can throw into the into the Clinton stew. Sessions in his uh, testimony and in statements has said that he's asked professional prosecutors within the Department of Justice to look in to whether there should be a counsel. And he was having a kind of investigation to see whether there was going to be investigation. That wasn't that wasn't good enough for some of the more um, fervent conservative members of the House committee questioning sessions. Uh, so I think there are two reads on this. One is, Emily, that Sessions is going to go along with having this banana republic style investigation of a presidential of the president's political rival Uh, the other is he is trying to avoid that and so he's having the professionals look into it so they can discover nothing and so that he can then fend it off um, because he doesn't want to have to deal with that chaos and the, the trouble that that would cause is right. there a third option? Well, I mean, no, I think that's right. I mean, the the reassuring vein in this was the idea that these are career prosecutors. Those are the people who are not political appointees. They work in the Justice Department. They're, they follow the facts. That's much better than otherwise. But then you also have to ask this question about why this is happening at all. And, you know, what we know, I really, the idea of getting into the weeds of the Uranium One deal is painful to me. But it does seem that there is no evidence that Hillary Clinton was involved in approving this deal, that um, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission also approved this deal. So what other than, you know, posturing congressmen and bloviating Donald Trump tweets do prosecutors need to have to, quote, look into something? Is that the standard? The new allegations for which there are uh, rebuttals, and and actually they're not that new, but they've been written about afresh, uh, is that the, the FBI was investigating efforts to bribe 
Clinton through the foundation and that it didn't that it wasn't a transparent about its investigation and um, that there is something inside that investigation that's uh, worth inve- worth looking into. So it, it becomes not just the deal itself, but the how the investigation was conducted into deciding whether there were efforts to influence Clinton through the foundation as a part of both this deal and other dealings. I mean, look, as a political matter, I hate the Clinton Foundation and the trouble it caused. It was incredibly arrogant and just dumb. I know that the Clintons think that it does all this great humanitarian work and it is different from like a personal slush fund. And of course, it is different. However, it has caused a lot of trouble. And I wish that they had never gone down that road. That said, I don't know how you ever, you know, adequately respond to what you were just talking about, John. It's totally who knows? Maybe there's something there. Maybe some nefarious deed by some FBI agent. Once allegations like that are out there, they're really hard to just dispel. What do I know? I'm not sitting in the FBI. But I do think we should have a high bar before we go around criminally investigating losing political opponents. That is just That is banana republic land. And the reason Donald Trump is calling for it is because he doesn't like the Mueller investigation and he loves having Hillary Clinton to kick around like that's It it just isn't more complicated than that in the end, or at least like that's where the equity should fall out, I think. I think you can imagine that this is something that uh, the Justice Department should look into Um, and yet still feel. And I think this is basically Andrew McCarthy's uh, view at the National Review. And yet still feel that there is um, that Congress is is um, bungling itself here for two reasons. One, by calling for a special counsel, they are just from a conservative perspective advocating for something that conservatives aren't supposed to like. Um, A is the first problem. B, they're actually undermining their ultimate chances for an outcome here that will be untainted by politics. Um, And C, they got other stuff to do. They got other really important work on the docket. And so they should as the governing party should go spend their time, do that, doing that, let the justice department do its thing. If the justice department doesn't, you know, has reason not to bring this, then they should spend their energies and obsessions on delivering for the American people. And that, that argument will actually end up hurting. I mean, in the end, the, the misalignment of priorities will end up hurting them politically. I'm an old person. I'm old. And literally my entire professional life, there has been, some investigation of this sort going on around the Clintons. The entirety of it. There's not been one minute. It's so boring. And, right, boring, hard to follow. And also, it, it has yielded tremendously little in the end, right? Not nothing, not nothing. We were talking about that earlier. But for all of the Sturm and Drang, like, little. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Let's leave it there. The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. 
The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. Gay rights now! Gay rights! With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. <laughs> and activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are contemplating your Thanksgiving cooking, you're making yourself a turkey cranberry mojito, which I know is Emily's favorite drink. What will you be chattering about, Emily? So I have been trying to follow Trump's judicial picks. You know, one of the most effective aspects of this presidency is the fast peopling of the nation's federal courts of appeal and federal district courts with Trump-selected judges. And then, of course, there's Neil Gorsuch at the Supreme Court. But let's leave him alone. There are a bunch of people being nominated who have, you know, things in their records that would one imagined have made them outside the mainstream, like um, support for conversion therapy for gay people. Um, Another nominee who described transgender children as part of Satan's plan. Another one who said that being Muslim is synonymous with being a terrorist. There's a lot of what would seem to be extreme views. In particular, there's this nominee, Brett Talley, who's awaiting Senate confirmation for a federal district court job in Alabama. He's gotten some attention for not disclosing that he's married to the chief of staff for the White House counsel. The Senate questionnaire asks about those kinds of ties. Talley didn't disclose them. There's also this criticism of him that he has never tried a case. He was rated not qualified by the American Bar Association, and presumably that's one of the reasons. I just wonder what we think about this standard of not trying a case. So trials are incredibly rare in the federal system now. I mean, over 95 percent of criminal cases plea bargain, and they're really unusual in the civil context as well. And, you know, whatever else you want to say about Mr. Talley, he served as deputy solicitor general for the state of Alabama. He's right now in the Office of Legal Policy at the Department of Justice. Like, I just wonder what we think about the idea that the main reason you'd be unqualified would be that you've never tried a case. Does that does that make sense to you guys or just well, like it shouldn't past be a barrier. romance? Yeah, I just like I'm a little hung up on why that is like the most relevant. Wasn't Earl Warren Earl Warren? Wasn't he never a judge? He, he was the Supreme governor. Yeah, he right. was the governor. Right. Well, that's true. But he had been the attorney general of California before that. And I bet he was a trial lawyer before that. I bet he checked the box of trying a case before he was governor. Yeah, that doesn't seem like a big deal. The line on your disclosure form. <laughs> yeah, that's more a bit of much. a problem. I'm with also, you on the, that. Also, the blogging that he did was a little bit. Yes, there is untoward. some blogging by several of them, which is really questionable. They've said really. Are you uh, yeah. trying? Are you positioning yourself for a judgeship? <laughs> right. Is that I, what's going not on here? Qualified <laughs> to have never tried a case. No, but, but I will say that I have not only never tried a case. I have never done a single second of oral advocacy in any kind of court setting. Except in here. In here. I have never in the court of stood public opinion. up in a court and said a word, which is probably the world is better for that. Surely. Okay, you that's would be my great. Job. You'd be such a good. You would be a great oral advocate. You would genuinely be great. You're right. you're I have a great explainer and arguer of your I have positions. a father, two sisters. They are carrying on that tradition. I am not needed. Well, I'm. We're gonna see that the Bazelon name is put in for what? What state would you be in? I guess Connecticut or Pennsylvania. You could yeah, try that's, to. That's okay. Thank you, though. <laughs> John, what is your Chatter. My chatter is um, is about a book that I read uh, a while ago, but that I've been rereading as a part of some work I'm doing. But it's called Indispensable When Leaders Really Matter by Gautam Mukunda, who's a 
professor at Harvard. And what I love about this book is that it looks at this thing we hear a lot, and particularly in the current context of our current president, which is the leaders in business and the relationship between leadership in business and leadership in the presidency. And we know, and there's been a lot written about why those two different kinds of leadership are different. But what I love about this book is, A, it questions, not questions, but it puts clearly the notion that actually a lot of times leaders don't matter, that basically because of the filtering systems that are used to put leaders in place, particularly in business, that it's the filtering system that's more important than the individual, that the filtering system ends up putting people in the place that any of the candidates would have been sufficient to make the company do well. And then his argument is, well, here are instances in which, no, this person is actually above and beyond as an individual, the filtering system. But of course, the genius and terror of the American system is the filtering system for presidents is quixotic and idiosyncratic and crazy. And sometimes it picks somebody like, Abraham Lincoln, who, if you had a rational filtering system, might not have been picked. And yet he does things that perhaps somebody picked through the normal filtering system would not have done. And then you have Warren Harding, who is the opposite example. It's basically a a systematic look at my favorite topic, which is how do you screen for – how do you create a filtering system for the presidency that makes sense? And the great insight – for my purposes, is um, is that for those people who like the idea of having a quote-unquote businessman in the Oval Office, that if in fact you really believe that there was some magic that came from the business world, you would actually not just see if somebody had business skills because those don't actually map on the presidency. But what you would do is actually then make sure that the way people were nominated represented a filtering system that's much closer to the one they use in business, which would, guess what that would lead to? Assessing these candidates based on whether they could actually do the job, not just based on whether they could, um, you know, play to the crowd or not. Anyway, it's a really nicely argued, um, fun book to read. My Chatter is about a wonderful series in the Kansas City Star, maddening series in the Kansas City Star, paper that I don't really read very much, about secrecy in Kansas state government. The the series has several parts about different ways in which secrecy infects the state government. It's a it's a notoriously closed mouth uh, place where they shred things. They don't reveal things to the public that are revealed in other places. But the most uh, astonishing part is about legislation in the Kansas legislature. More than 90% of bills in Kansas have no author. So there's this terrible procedure that's developed whereby if you have a controversial measure that you want to get passed, you take an uncontroversial measure that has passed the Senate, one house, just passed one body of the Kansas bicameral legislature. You take something that's passed it, you withdraw all the text from it, you gut it, and you stick in your bill, uh, and then it just goes, and then you get the House to pass it, and then it goes back to the Senate. The Senate can vote it up or down, even though it has nothing to do with the measure that the Senate voted on earlier. And there's no author associated with it. There's no kind of legislative trail associated with it. And this is a way that basically everything in Kansas is becoming law this way without any public discussion of it. It's very hard to track legislation, and no one has to be responsible for legislation. And so you get all kinds of favors to corporations get stuck in there, all kinds of controversial uh, measures that people don't want to have to face their voters about get stuck in there. It's outrageous. It is very unschoolhouse rock, and uh, Kansas should be ashamed of itself and should fix it. What's the matter with Kansas? Oh, wait, that was already a book. Yeah. So don't forget that we have this conundrum live show in Boston. We do want your conundrums. We want you to come to the show. So slate.com slash live to come to our December 6th show in Boston at the Wilbur Theater with They Might Be Giants performing with us. And please also send us your conundrums. Tweet at us with uh, at, at Slate Gabfest. Email us at gabfest at slate.com or post them on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash gabfest. So here's one that we got sent. Would you rather die poor and unhappy, but write a book that would after your death change millions of people's lives for the better for many generations? Or die rich and happy, but upon your death, be forgotten. So that's that's one question we might end up discussing at the Wilbur Theater. Slate.com slash live for tickets or send us conundrums. Before we go to our credits, I just want to say a good word about another Slate podcast, which is Slate Money. This is a podcast I listen to religiously on Saturday morning, usually when I'm at the gym or on a bike ride. It's uh, Felix Salmon Effusion, Slate's Moneybox columnist, Jordan Weissman, and political risk consultant, Anna Shemansky. It's like a gab fest of... Uh, money, business, and finance, but it's really, really good, unlike <laughs> unlike our show. 
No, it's really good. They're it's nothing very, to do with the Gap Fest. They're very funny. It's smart. It's it's a great show for some, if you're sort of interested in the topics but don't know very much. They're great explainers. They take things that you've heard about filtering in the news and they they explain it and put them in context and have really lively discussions about those issues. It's super fun. They had a great discussion about Saudi Arabia that I listened to the other day. Fascinating. They about college endowments. And what, why university endowments are the way they are, and should universities have endowments at all? It's a great show. Slate Money. You should listen to it. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Izzy Road. You can follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabfest. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So. First, it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.